That's such a big part of the job, and nobody teaches us how to do it. That's today's guest, the smart string teacher Grace Law, discussing a crucial skill we don't often learn in our college classes. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about today's guest. Grace Law has a music and teaching degree from the University of Toronto. She has 30 years of private and classroom teaching experience and currently teaches high school string orchestra in Toronto. She has also lived and breathed 10 years of Celtic music in the Canadian Maritimes and founded the Smart String Teacher, a resource for anyone teaching large group or private string education. Find Grace's full bio, show notes, and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. What was a high point for you in this interview, Alan? Her talk about language was intriguing. Some phrases have baggage, like warm-up. And using cute words for bad habits seemed like simple fun to me until this conversation. What about you, Steve? Yeah, same. It certainly resonated with me that we need to move beyond simply telling them what they are doing wrong and instead give some positive, concrete ways to fix it. Her philosophy on avoiding mnemonic devices to learn notes was a quick point that she made, but I'm still thinking about it. Let's get to our conversation with Grace Law. Grace Law, welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, as we work to improve our teaching, I think we're often adding tools to our toolbox. However, are there some common strategies you see teachers using that they maybe should stop doing or at the very least spend less time on? Yeah. So one thing that I think uh, teachers should try to be more aware of is the language they're using. And it's something that I've worked on over the years. And something that I recommend to the teachers I train is to make sure that number one, the language is doing what you think it's doing. <laughs> and second, that you spend more time talking about what you do want instead of what you don't want. Some examples of that are, I often find teachers still using bow grip to describe the bow hold or to call the bow hold, right? Don't say bow grip if you don't want them to grip their bow, right? Call it a bow hold. We should ne not never be calling a bow hold a bow, bow grip, uh, yet I find that still very common. Another thing is um, referring to bad technique with fun names like banana thumbs and waiter wrist and death grip and steak knife grip and all these 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 names that I've seen uh, teachers use for bad technique. You don't want to do that because you're bringing attention to something you don't want and you're getting them to visualize that. Okay, so always focus on what you do want. If you want straight wrists, then talk about straight wrists. If you want straight thumbs, then you want to, you know, talk about straight thumbs. Okay. So something else that teachers want to also notice or pay attention to, and you, you kind of learn this through experience, is um, sometimes when we're correcting technique, we're not actually addressing the cause of that technique problem. For instance, a big one is the bent wrist on the left hand, right, holding violin or viola. You can tell the student to straighten their wrist, straighten their wrist, straighten their wrist as much as you want, but that is not the solution to a straight wrist. The solution to a straight wrist 
is to look at their thumb. Is it lying backwards? And if they straighten their thumb so that it's pointing up, that will automatically straighten their wrist. Yeah, I really like that answer. I, I'll be honest, when I crafted the question, I was thinking there might be things people are either spending rehearsal time or lesson time actively doing that was maybe not a super great use of time. Hadn't even occurred to me that one of the things you're suggesting we stop doing is using certain types of language to try to get what we want. And I think your suggestion of we often focus on what we don't want and we're pointing out what we don't want, certainly not unique to string teachers. <laughs> I think all of our listeners can relate to that, that when they maybe stop their group, the first thing they talk about is what they heard that was wrong or what they're seeing that was wrong instead of of maybe finding a language or way of speaking that helps the students maybe more quickly do the right thing instead of just simply knowing what was wrong. And uh, that, that root cause thing is, is really helpful. I, I'm reminded of all these directors who say, hold your flute up, hold your flute up, hold your flute up, instead of push up with your right elbow. Yeah, that, that makes all the difference in the world. Right. If hold your flute up, hold your flute up worked everyone's flutes would be held up perfectly. And, and like you said, the, the telling you to straighten the left hand on the, on the violin or viola, like if that worked, we wouldn't see that problem everywhere. That's exactly right. And that is exactly how I've developed uh, my pedagogy is through trial and error and thinking, okay, I keep saying this, but it's not working. I better change what I'm saying. But often we get stuck saying the same thing over and over again. Don't focus so much on what they did wrong. Let's talk a little bit about the beginning of a rehearsal or a lesson. Uh, after we get the instruments in tune, I think some teachers, especially in the larger group settings, say, well, that already took five minutes. I need to dig into the important stuff, the repertoire, whereas some others might spend a very lengthy time with a warm-up of some sort. Where do you weigh in on this? Should we use the warm-ups at the beginning uh, of rehearsal or just dig into repertoire? Uh, is it different from one-on-one -on -one lessons to maybe a larger group? So here's another example of how language can affect what we do. Okay, when we call something a warm up, that comes with a lot of baggage, right? <laughs> Should we do it? Should we not do it? Is it a waste of time? Is it productive? You know, all those questions go through our head. And, and so the reason why the teacher would even not do a warm up is because that's how they see a warm up. So I think the important thing here is to not call it a warm up. We call it skill development time. What skills are you going to develop uh, in this first part of the class or rehearsal? So what advice do you have for someone who was just hired to teach in a school orchestra program, but all or at least most of their training and background had been with, say, a concert band? I love that question, too, because that really ties into what I do. My recommendation is to go to my website. There you'll find lots of information on teaching beginner stages of strings, as well as my free master classes on that topic as well. I do a lot of different topics. You'll get trained in playing at least one instrument. I make it so simple to play an instrument that often people take on two instruments. And then finally, one thing that I find is very, is lacking is um, training in troubleshooting technique, because that's such a big part of the job, right? And nobody teaches us how to do it. So what are some of the most common issues that teachers encounter when starting beginners? We've talked a little bit about bowl hold, um, 
and and some of your suggestions. Are there some other things either involving bow hold or holding the instrument or playing the very first steps of pizzicato or or arco playing and some uh, and some little tips that you found work pretty well over the years? The hardest part of teaching the beginner stages is demonstrating. And when you demonstrate from the front of the room, that's the worst way to teach technique because the students can't all see you properly. They're also not seeing you from your point of view, the, from their point of view. Something that I have created are these handouts for teaching uh, the beginning stages of both a left hand and right hand technique. You can find them on my website. Uh, they're called uh, Smart Left Hand, uh, Smart Bow Hold and Left Hand Handouts. And as soon as I finished um, handing them out, the students on the other side of the room who got them first were already showing me perfect bow holds. Now, why was that? Because I had laid out the steps in the pictures step by step, very specific steps, okay? Uh, and they were just able to look at them and imitate them. And, why, and, and, and the reason why it works so well is because the pictures don't move. Your demonstration is moving. The video is moving. Okay? The pictures don't move. They can do it right away. And they can take their time to do and match the pictures. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Even if you're moving very, very slowly to demonstrate something, that's still a lot of information for someone to take in. It's just where do, where do they look? What do they look at? And then if they look away for one second at something that distracts them, <laughs> did they miss something important? I, I love that idea. So there's there's uh, pictures for every step of the way, basically, that, they, that you have them looking at. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, so... Um... It starts off with doing both left hand and uh, doing both bow, bow hold and left hand on a pencil because you want to do that first so to establish their muscle memory. And you know, lots of people have not done left hand on a pencil, but when you look at my handles, you'll see how I do it, and it's very easy. Now, when they have that in their muscle memory, you want to transfer it to the bow and to the instrument. It makes it so much easier to do. And what about for maybe our more advanced students when we're working on reading music notation uh, a skill? We were just talking with another guest who was um, emphasizing the importance of sight reading skills in their program. Do you have suggestions for teachers who are trying to help students develop proficiency with sight reading musical notation? Yeah. Okay. So um, number one, don't introduce notation as face and every good boy deserves fudge okay that is such a what that does is when once you write it on the board or once they look at it what happens is it makes notes look random and immediately a bunch of kids or if not all of them will think oh music is random and this is going to be hard Okay, you don't want that to be the first thing they see. Okay, you want to introduce notes logically. And if you look on my uh, website in the blog, uh, I have something called the note circle, where they learn to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, and then backwards, A, G, B, F, backwards. <laughs> um, and so they get uh, fluency in uh, the notes right away. And you use that as a way to, to introduce uh, note reading sequentially. 
other thing is introduce rhythm before the book. And the other thing about rhythm is introduce it vertically. Okay, so that they see the, how the rhythms line up in four beat patterns. Yeah, and I like that you immediately, when I was talking about more advanced students, bringing it back to the beginning stages of reading notes and rhythms and just how important having that good start is. That if you maybe learned the notes in an order that didn't make logical sense because you're using the word face or, or every good boy deserves fudge, that you're really going to be at a disadvantage for a while if if you're starting off that way instead of maybe grounded more logically. And then the teachers who are working on some of those more advanced concepts are going to be kind of fighting that forever. Has that been your experience? That's exactly right. You know, you want to, with everything that I do, you want to introduce things so it looks easy. And what about your approach directing a large group of students or even say three or more individuals where you might have them on different instruments or they're at slightly different levels of accomplishment versus an individual one-on-one -on -one private lesson? Do you have some suggestions for how you might deal with those changes? I think the major difference is that when I'm teaching a group versus uh, individual lessons is with a group, you have so much opportunity to teach them about collaboration, right? I start right away, the beginning of the year, they're sitting in partners, take advantage of that, have them help each other all the time um, and create a collaborative environment. Um, and like I uh, said before, have them um, make decisions about their pieces, about what they need to do, things like that. Um, get them to take ownership of the group. So as you have been out, and I, and I want to hear a little bit more about Smart String Teacher here to close things down in a bit, but before we uh, dig a little more into that, I'm kind of curious as you've been sharing these strategies with teachers, has there been something that universally the teachers grab onto right away and say, oh, I love this idea or I tried this and it worked. And I'm also curious if there's been something that you have been kind of preaching and getting some resistance. The And I'm thinking about, for example, the, no, I've taught every good boy does fine for 20 years and it's worked fine for me. And I don't know if it would be that, but is I'm curious if you have encountered both ends of the spectrum, stuff that people just latched onto right away and said, why haven't I already been doing this? It worked great. And other stuff where you had to say, no, you're just going to need to trust me on this. I know this is different than what you're used to. You're going to resist it, but, but please try it. Okay. So Here's one thing that uh, will make a big difference in intonation. So many of the method books refer to uh, low, low second finger and high second finger, right? And of course, you know, we've all experienced how that doesn't work very well. The students have no idea what uh, low or they, they don't understand. It, it doesn't sink into them. Why? Because low and high are vague concepts. You have not told them specifically how low or how high. So how do you solve this problem? You teach them that low, or you teach every instrument 
how to play a semitone on their instrument and how to play a whole tone on their instrument. I know you guys call it half step and whole step. So, and then, um, then you you can then they will understand that oh a semitone ha makes a certain sound so it has to be a certain amount of space and a whole tone has to, is a certain sound it has to be a certain amount of space okay then it becomes concrete then they'll understand what a low two is and what a high two is so when we're introducing F natural for example on the on the violin or viola instead of saying low two, you say it's a semitone or half step here in the United States away from your first finger or? Uh, it's a semitone, yeah, from the first finger, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and you have gone through an exercise to show them what the semitone sounds like and, and et cetera. Uh, by the way, yeah, that, I do a free master class on that topic as well. So if you wanna know how I introduce that. Yeah, and let's let's close with a little bit more about Smart String Teacher and what what do our listeners need to know about it? What else uh, can you do, or or does it involve that we haven't discussed so far? So I already mentioned the master classes and the course. Uh, I also wanted to mention my books. Um, so again, how I like how I approach things is how do I make uh these resources so that the students understand exactly what they're doing and can use these resources on their own so for instance i have um something called smart scales and i've created this the scale book that i've always wanted and that is a scale book that number one has fingering charts for all the scales Number two, divides the uh, two octaves of the scale uh, so that there's an easy octave and a hard octave before you play two octaves together, which is pedagogically a better sequence than jumping from one octave straight into two octaves and has fingerings for everything. Uh, and it's so easy for non-string players to, to use uh, as teachers so that they can look at because all the because all the fingering charts are there and everything they need to know how to play the scale. So things like that. Uh, I've got a bowing exercises uh, handout that um, lists everything you need to know about the bow and how to use it. Uh, and that again is great for non-string majors as well. Um, and yeah, everything is like that, so that the students have resources that they can refer to um, to learn pretty much most everything they need to know to play. Yeah, it's a great website. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. looking at it right now as you're talking about it, all the books and the bundles, the teacher training, the blogs, the free material. It's, it's great. What would you suggest for uh, first the, the string teacher listening who's been doing this a while? They play a string instrument. They played a string instrument in college. Uh, and in high school, middle school, maybe they had some Suzuki training themselves. They've been doing this a while and they think, I'm pretty good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with what I'm doing. What, what do you think they should check out of yours? Well, they should definitely check out the handouts that I mentioned earlier because the beginning stages for some teachers can be really, really, really slow. Uh, and um, so that will help make it a lot faster. Check out my master classes because maybe you'll get some new ideas. I've had uh, almost retired teachers take my course and get so much out of it. And what about uh, for someone who just graduated from college, 
they had they were lucky maybe if they had one semester where they had to kind of learn all the string instruments at once and they're completely overwhelmed should they do the teaching strings made easy part one teacher training is that the is that where they should start with you definitely definitely and i've had uh, new grads come come out and and do it too uh, which, you know, I really admire those kinds of students uh, who want to be super prepared for that first year that they're teaching. I think that's so great. And these, uh, the teacher training, is it via Zoom or are they all in person? How are, how are you doing those things these days? They are online. I actually started it during COVID. <laughs> so yeah, they're online so you can access it from anywhere. And and just listeners, you, you ought to know this by now, but if you don't, all the links to all of these things on Smart String Teacher are going to be in the show notes. So check that out. All right. Well, Grace Law, thank you so much for joining us today to share your tips and tricks and information about Smart String Teacher. Do you have time for a couple of lightning round questions to close down? Lightning round. <laughs> okay, go ahead. All right. What's the best place to eat in Toronto, Canada? One of my favorite places is uh, an Egyptian restaurant called Papyrus. And I just love their full and uh, bilati bread. What's a musical artist or a piece of music that you wish more people knew about? You know what? Because you're in the States, I'm going to answer that with a genre. Uh, you guys play a lot of bluegrass and Irish and that's and jazz and that's getting in the classrooms. Take a look at Cape Breton fiddling. Say that one more time, please. Cape Breton fiddling. Is that, is that Kaylee? Kaylee, yeah, Kaylee music. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like driving. It's a um, great way to uh, get those four fingers going because there's a lot of droning. It's, it's really fun stuff. Great. Do you have a book recommendation for our listeners? Ideally, that doesn't have anything to do with music. Doesn't everything have to do with music? Oh, I love that answer. <laughs> okay, so uh, I love reading books about how to change your change uh, how you think. Uh, and so one of those books is called The One Thing. And I like that book because it's kind of how I think and how you know I developed what I developed. And it teaches you to zone in on the one thing that's going to make the most difference in whatever you're doing. Is there a piece of so-called classical music that you would be perfectly happy if you didn't have to play it again or listen to it again? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to say the Brandenburg concertos. I don't ever I when I was um uh, a student and uh as a early teacher that was like played everywhere all the Kiwanis Festival and everybody was playing them and, and I still haven't gotten over them. So I've never taught them. <laughs> the last time I listened to a Brandenburg concerto was an hour ago. <laughs> Mind you, I love listening to them, but I, I, I don't, I don't want to teach them. Okay. All right. Okay, cool. Cool. All right. We're good. We're good then. And finally, if you weren't a musician, what career do you think you might've had? That would have to be an actress. Because as a kid, I've always, I, as a kid, I wanted to be, uh, grow up to be Shirley Temple. <laughs> so, so in that vein, I have another lightning round question for you. Uh, oh, this is, you, this a, is a first. We, our as, first international, uh, someone recording from outside of the United States and a bonus lightning round question <laughs> from Alan. All right. 
As a Toronto resident, how do you feel about Kim's Convenience? Oh, I love Kim's Convenience. Oh, that that was great. I just love it. So great to see so much stuff that I could relate to, you know, on the screen and, and as a series. Like, that was great. Yeah, it's, a, it's a family favorite here, but uh, unfortunately, our vacation to Toronto happened before we discovered the show, so we couldn't stock the original location. Grace Law, thank you so much for being a guest here today. We are very excited to uh, to share all these insights with our listeners, as well as direct them to your brilliant website and wonderful resources. Thanks so much for making time for us today. Thank you so much for inviting me and having me here. It's been lots of fun. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights. Music Ed Insights.